When I first came to the Markless Center nearly 10 years ago, if I asked someone to consider a discussion of ethics in their company or in their company's boardroom, they might tell me that that seemed like a waste of time. But no one is saying that anymore. Just the speed with which AI has come into the marketplace and into the public consciousness, even though it's been developed over many decades, and the power of it has people really thoughtfully approaching its implementation. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Sturluson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Arts Management. We are in the midst of a major technological change with a intensified integration and development of AI. There's a lot of excitement around possibilities, but also many well-informed people who are raising serious concerns. I'm sure this might be one of the issues that is keeping you up at night. On this podcast episode, I have a conversation with Anne Skeet. Anne is the Senior Director of Leadership Ethics at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley. Her work focuses on the ethical dilemmas of leadership and business ethics, with a particular interest in healthy corporate culture, corporate governance, and ethical leadership practices, all grounded in emphasis on human flourishing. Her research explores how to make ethics pervasive in organizations and how to manage culture. She teaches ethics literacy for boards in the Silicon Valley Executive Education Center in the Levy School of Business. Skeet is a co-author of Ethics in the Age of Disruptive Technologies and Operational Roadmap. In our conversation, we talk about what Anne is concerned and hopeful about as it relates to AI and ethics. And we discuss how leaders can make more values-based decisions how to integrate ethics, and what we can learn from mental health research in thinking about cultural health. However, before we start the conversation, I wanted to tell you about a free PDF guide that we've developed to help you lead lasting culture change. In our work with numerous organizations, we've realized that how organizations typically approach culture change and values integration just doesn't work. That's why we put together a free resource with six vital steps to leading lasting culture change and making values matter. And we've already received so much great feedback on the people who have downloaded it since we launched it just a few weeks ago. So go and download your free guide today at heartmanagement.org guide. You get your guide at heartmanagement.org guide. But now... Without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Anne Skeet. Anne, it is such a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Well, thanks very much for having me, Tobias. So I, I heard you on another podcast, and, and as I did, I, I was just really, really excited to, 
to have a conversation with you. And I was so glad when, when you said yes to my request. And we're going to, to kind of deal with a, a broad range of subjects today. And I wanted first to understand just shortly what made you become interested in the topics of leadership, ethics, healthy culture, and, and AI, which will also be a part of this conversation today. So, so, so can you just kind of introduce us just shortly to who you are and why you got into these subjects? Well, I started my career in industry, and so I had a couple of roles as business executive uh, positions in different companies. But then I became the CEO of this organization called American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley, which is here in Silicon Valley, and it is um, brings together leaders from the private, nonprofit, and public sector into a year-long um, program designed for civic engagement and leadership development. And I happened to be doing that job in the early 2000s as Sarbanes-Oxley legislation was coming online in the United States in response to some fairly high-profile uh, business ethics scandals like Enron and WorldCom and others. And um, so as I was working with these CEOs, um, part of the program includes a, a camping trip, and then there were other opportunities for retreats and more reflective moments. And often they would be talking at that time about the challenge of the of the regulation, which was that all of a sudden their personal accountability for what everybody in their organization did had just ratcheted up. And they were really... Um, you know, stymied by the idea of, you know, what could they do and how could they act in a way that would encourage other people in their organizations to behave ethically and to do the right thing. And so that question has really stayed with me all these years. I think it's a great question for leaders to reflect on, which is, you know, what, what can they do and how, and how, how can they behave in a way that brings forward the best in other people? That's so, so interesting. And I, I, I'm just thinking that for, for several people that we've had on this podcast, I think the, the, the moment of the Enron scandal and, and some, some of these other scandals have been just those kind of moments that, that really became a, led to a, a shift in, in a way in their career. I'm thinking, for example, about Mary Gently, who, who you might know has written Give, Give Voice to Values and created that, that whole curriculum. And 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 the the Enron scandal was really where she started to see some of her like kind of her former students on the on the on the front pages of the the, the newspapers and 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 for me myself it's it's growing up and and I, I've shared this on the podcast before growing up in what became a a destructive cult really and 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 religious cult and 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 becoming complicit in a very destructive culture and even psychological abuse and 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 really dealing with that and 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 on this podcast I've, I've kind of had conversations with so many people to to understand things from an organizational leadership standpoint but also just understanding things from a from a personal standpoint so so it's a it's a bit selfish in that regard but what i what i'm just thinking about is is that when when we're talking about these issues i'm just thinking that one of those first things that kind of we need to grapple with is the idea that we very easily when we think about these scandals we think oh but that's not me or that's not us that this for some reason 
couldn't be us. So, but we are a great organization, or I'm a values-based leader, and and so on. Could you just speak to that assumption? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us want to believe that, but the reality is we're all flawed individuals, right? And we all have moments um, where we are better at ethical decision making, and moments where we're um, you know, maybe affected by things that are very human, like being tired or, um, you know, um, hungry. <laughs> you know, there can be just basic um, things that get in the way of our ability to think clearly. And I like to think about ethical leadership as a practice, as sort of a, a set of things that you can do, um, uh, muscles you can build much in the same way as a, as a yoga practice, but that have two aspects to it, sort of the being and the doing. So the being is where you think more about yourself and how you show up in the world and what your ability is to master yourself, your your character and how others uh, might experience you. And that's kind of the foundation, right? So, and then everything that you do in a leadership position will really build on that and the impact that you can have, which is the way I like to think about it, which is how much impact can I have as a leader? is then driven by certain actions that you take. And those actions can be things like the conscious creation of community and bringing people together and establishing those relationships between each other, kind of encouraging that. It can be you know, basic blocking and tackling, like encouraging ethical behavior. That's the code of conduct and things like that in organizations. And um, mostly it's making sure as a leader that you're always keeping clear in your own mind and in the minds of others whose interests need to be served primarily. And, and of course, that's not the leader's interests. It should be the interests of the organization and the people that the organization serves. And so keeping those stakeholders' interests in mind is really critical. And then things will, will go wrong. So leaders have a certain set of actions they need to be able to take when things go wrong to clarify culture and to sort of say, address whatever's happened and say, well, you know, this isn't who we are or how we want to continue to behave and kind of write the apple cart when that happens. And then the final thing is sort of area that I think about in terms of ways that leaders have impact is they go beyond their own organization. If they have the capacity, if they can look beyond sort of the, to the broader system that they're part of, whether it's the industry or whatever ecosystem they're part of, and think about the design of healthy systems. And that can happen in organizations, in, inside of organizations, it can be things like how people get paid or promoted. But outside of organizations, it's really industry standards. Or right now we're seeing with artificial intelligence, you know, we've seen a number of leaders who have been very proactively involved in setting some voluntary standards for behavior and things that they're willing to commit to in the implementation of AI. So that's an example. I know sometimes they've gotten criticized for that. Oh, they're just doing that to sort of secure their spot in the industry and all of that. But I actually think it's a very good practice for them to be engaged at that level and to be thinking beyond just what's going on in their organization, but how their organization is interacting with society more broadly. So you've touched on so many things there, and I, I really want us to kind of dig a bit deeper in, into some of these things, because what I'm re realizing working with leaders is that that on a high level, it all, I should not say it, it seems simple because it doesn't, but 
but but you you can kind of grasp it okay this is this is what we should be doing but then when you take it to the actual action or or, or we say making it a practice making it a habit making it making it into something that i repeatedly do and especially perhaps in situations when i'm under pressure that that's a lot harder and and so for example if if we think about making decisions and and decision making values based or ethical decision making and and of course i think we 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 all realize that a lot of our decisions are not necessarily uh black or white they are quite much in 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 the gray zone uh a lot of our decisions we might not necessarily know the consequences that they might have at the onset and and some decisions that might not seem that sm- that major can turn into major things over time and and i i think we all familiar with the 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 the, the idea of the slippery slope and 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 i, I think you we might have seen that in our our lives as well that we take a small decision in kind of a wrong direction and and after some time we find ourselves in a in a wrong place and so if we would start there and just think about ethical decision making and i i know that's something that you uh that that the the Marcula center has developed a framework around and and what are some ways that that leaders can proactively think about their decision making to try to intentionally make more values based and ethical decisions well we joke at the at the ethics center that all decisions are ethical decisions <laughs> um, but in reality you know one of the ways you can know that you're dealing with an ethical dilemma or that you maybe need to slow down and be more thoughtful about the decision is to ask yourself a couple of questions about the situation you know is is could anybody be harmed in this situation or potentially you you might be facing a moment where you're you're faced with either two really good choices and you need to pick between those two really good choices or two really bad choices and you need to figure out which of these very unattractive options you're going to pursue or you might realize that you've got an issue that sort of supersedes the law. You know, the law is kind of a minimum in some ways, but that there are other considerations that need to be taken into effect. And then, yeah, we point people towards this um, framework for ethical decision making. It's really the oldest technology, if you will, of the center. The center has been around since 1986, but the lenses in this framework have been around for centuries. And uh, and what the center has done is just sort of bring them together and provide six different lenses for people to use and, and sort of a set of questions that people can ask themselves when they're faced with one of these dilemmas. So um, just touch briefly on the lenses themselves. Um, we, we, we work with companies where we can spend a whole day on the framework for ethical decision making, but um, here there's sort of uh, just quickly looking at the, the rights lens, which takes into account um, the the actions that best protect and respect the moral rights of people, of those that are affected. You know, all humans have dignity and are deserving of respect simply for the fact that they are human and they have a right to not be treated as a means to an end. So this ap- option asks uh, which, which choice will best respect the rights of all who have a stake. Then the justice lens looks at notions of fairness and considers whether each person has been given their due. And it pays attention to are the benefits and the burdens being distributed evenly 
um, amongst the people that are affected by the decision. I think a lot of people have heard of utilitarianism or the utilitarian lens, which looks at the consequences of our actions. And it asks uh, which will produce the greatest good and do the least harm for all those affected. So in a business setting, that might be customers, employees, shareholders, the community, the environment. There's lots of different stakeholders to take into account when you're using that lens. The common good lens calls attention to the common conditions that are uh, important to the welfare of everyone. So things like clean air and water, the rule of law, public education. And while the utilitarian lens looks at sort of how benefits uh, goods aggregate to the individual, the common good is, is um, focused on the community as a whole and not just some members in the community. And so it asks which option is going to best serve that community. The virtue lens is really an individual lens. It's um, looking at those values that enable us to act and be our best self. So when you're applying the virtues lens to a decision, you're, you're asking yourself, you know, which, is gonna, which option is going to allow me to be the best version of myself and, um, you know, and act on behalf of virtues like honesty and compassion. And the final lens is the care lens, which is rooted in our relationships and the need to respond to individuals in their specific circumstances. Um, so decisions that are made through this lens account for relationships and the concern and feeling of all the different stakeholders. So we encourage people first to recognize they have, uh, you know, sort of an ethical consideration on their hands and then to use those lenses to make a decision. And then once they've made their decision to sort of come back and reflect on it. This is super helpful. And, and then, of course, all of these lenses have like they they bring different value and and, and a different helpful perspectives and of course they they build on on different kind of ethical theories and and what i just wanted to ask you is i i think for for many leaders when they are in the process of making decision let's say that it's a really major decision then you can think oh we have the time in that sense to to reflect on all these different perspectives but i think many times that's not something they feel that they have and that where this might feel kind of complicated. Is, is there something that you would say, okay, this is a, a good starting point, or if you would only ask yourself two questions or, or, or think from two different perspectives, what would those be? I think if you're in an organizational setting, I encourage people, and it's sort of a mark of healthy organizational culture, is to have a rubric for ethical decision-making that's organization-wide. And it brings coherence to the organization. It allows, you know, sort of decisions to hang together because presumably when you develop that rubric, it's going to have a connection to the mission and values of the organization. And it's going to enable people to see, oh, we have some consistency to the approach that we take here. And you know, a current example of that right now is a number of companies are really thinking uh, about the development, uh, the responsible development of technology. You know, how do I bring technologies online? AI is the hot topic right now, so uh, AI is the one that's getting talked about quite a bit. But really, it can be true for any technology. And um, I think a lot of organizations are finding it useful to have a set of principles. 
and um, a, having a, a governance mechanism is one of the things that's being recommended as a best practice by a number of organizations like like NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology here in the United States. Its its framework uh, includes uh, you know a whole quadrant on governance, and you need to have some way to make those decisions. And so principles that guide your work are really helpful. And we're seeing a lot of organizations um, working pretty hard to develop those principles and then use them in the organization. So talking about principles, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that principles and, and, and values are, are somewhat similar in, in that values, I think, should be basically comprised of, of the principles that we don't want to compromise and, and the behaviors we want to encourage or not condone. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about what, in your perspective, makes a principle really clear and helpful? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because some of the work that we've done at the center recently, we just published a book on uh, tech ethics. And one of the things we did was look at the fact that a number of principles in that in that realm have are very similar. A lot of organizations are coming up with ones that sound the same, you know, maintain accountability or transparency and explainability. And there's a, a reason for that, I think, because they're providing some utility to those organizations in making day-to-day decisions. But then there were some that don't get talked about as much. Um, and still we felt would be useful to bring forward because they reflect the values of our organization. Um, So remembering that the earth is shared by all life, for example, bringing the environment into the discussion is a principle that we've brought forward. So again, I think it's, um, it's making that link between the organization's values and then the, the guidance that you're going to be giving to other people to apply in their decision-making. And so I, I think it's been, I've been very encouraged by um, the number of organizations that have worked so diligently to develop um, a, a means for, for guiding their work that is values-based. When you think about good examples there and, and what, what are ways that they ensure, because I, I think all of these things are in that, say, easy to say. I mean, it's easy to say that we should remember that the earth is here by all life or transparency, for example. But I mean, at, at, at some point, it's going to cost us something. At some point, we come to a place where uh, choosing not to be transparent about, for example, we we do research on our users and we realize that some part of our service, let's say we're, we're a tech company, is actually harmful. And suddenly it's it's not in our best, at least short-sighted financial interests to make that information public, but it's better to to hide it away. For example, just just to, to, to give one example. So what are ways that yeah that that you see companies are really grappling with making it into something more than a nice tagline or I mean, that, that we're willing, because in, in my perspective, like values that aren't allowed to cost us something aren't worth, worth anything either. It's like at the point of pressure, it's at the point of cost that they actually become valuable. What's, what's your perspective? What are, what are some good examples that you've seen? 
Yeah, I think I think there are a number of companies now who are willing to uh, have a short term cost, if you will, something that looks like they're giving something up, either they're slowing down their decision making process, or they might be engaging uh, community stakeholders. Um, we've seen a number of companies develop mechanisms to get that input from various stakeholders, for example. And it really is guiding what kind of technology they're choosing to bring online. Unfortunately, there's a lot of examples of the kind that you're describing where companies have information and they withhold it. Tobacco did that uh, around the harmful effects uh, on uh, health effects of smoking cigarettes. Um, You know, there's new information coming forward that uh, Facebook, for example, had information about how harmful um, some of its uh, th- some of the ways that it was choosing to have its technology behave affected young people and didn't bring that information forward as um, quickly as they could have or have, haven't acted on it. So um, there are unfortunate examples. One of my favorite um, best examples is an oldie but a goodie. Uh, it goes back many years to the Tylenol scare. And the reason I like that example is that that was a company, Johnson & Johnson, that had a credo, that had a very well-articulated set of values that it shared in the organization. And so when something happened, uh, in that case, uh, medicine was, uh, was tampered with and poisoned, um, they could act very quickly. And they, they, even though nobody was putting little foil caps on their you know, medicine bottles at the time, they um, made changes that have then since become industry standard uh, to protect the health and safety of people who use their products. And it cost them tremendously in the short term. And the CEO at the time talked about it. But, it's, but from his perspective, it was a worthwhile cost because he had a long-term view. And he understood what value erosion could look like over time if you lose people's trust. And so I think we're in a time that's a bit of a crisis of trust um, where people have, are really struggling to identify organizations and institutions that they feel they can have some confidence in. And business actually is doing better than some other parts of society if you look at certain metrics like the, the Edelman Trust Barometer and other, other measures. Um, and so I think business leaders uh, recognize that. And they're seeing that people are turning to them for leadership in areas and social issues and things that they aren't used to providing leadership in. Um, and they're having to get more comfortable with that. So I think when you see an organization actually take their values and put them into action, you know, those are the best examples. I mean, we, we've had Sandra Sutcher on this podcast, it was, it was a trust researcher at, at Harvard, and and we talked about the 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 Tylenol scandal as well as uh, as far as I, I remember it. And of course, and like you say, it is a it is a fantastic example. And I, I'm I'm glad that you're pointing out trust because I think that that's probably the currency that is really at the heart of this. That it's in my my work with this. Like I, I come to that place that okay, I mean. Trust is the thing. We an organization can't really operate successfully long term without trust, and as leaders, we can't really operate without the trust of our team members. And and that that's maybe the the, the place. And I, I I wanted to talk about AI 
And I'm thinking back now, let's say this is uh, 10 years ago, something like that, uh, where I went to this conference. So, so at that time in my life, I was leading a, a communications agency. And I went to this conference with hundreds of people who were kind of leading people within the social media web industry in Sweden at the time. And the excitement was like palpable. They, people just thought that, I mean, this is the greatest thing ever. And, and now that people are able to connect with each other uh, and get access to any kind of information, like we're going to solve all the world's problems. And, 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 and I, I just remember thinking, I mean, seeing that and almost like religious zeal around these new technologies and just thinking, but, but aren't we still humans? Aren't we still at some point driven by great things and, and sometimes not so great things? And will there ever be a technology that, that overcomes that? And, and I, I didn't really think so. And, and of course, now we we've seen the backsides. We're not as positive <laughs> to all of this as we as as perhaps many ones were. And I think now, of course, we're we're standing uh, before this this new shift. It's not new, really. It's of course a lot of these things have been around, and we've been impacted by them for for a long time. And AI has been used extensively for many of the services that we use every day. But with chat GPT and so on, suddenly we realize more what's what's actually, uh, yeah, what, what's actually happening and the development and and so on. I've, I I mean I've I've just for myself just starting using it. It feels like I, I don't know how to live without it when you when you when you have it. So I'm just thinking, what are some things that you've been and 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 I mean you've been really looking into to AI ethics and of course you were in Silicon Valley. I also know that. Which, which is another interesting uh, perspective is that you've also advised the the Vatican on on on, on these issues on ethics and in and technology and and AI development. So, what's what are some things that you are excited about and some things that you are concerned about and that you think that leaders should be thinking about? Well, I'm most excited about the fact that AI is actually bringing ethics to the forefront. I mean, people want to get this right. They don't want to recreate the mistakes that were made with social media. Uh, when I first came to the Markless Center nearly 10 years ago, if I asked someone to consider a discussion of ethics in their company or in their company's boardroom, they might tell me that that seemed like a waste of time. Um, but no one is saying that anymore. So there are other drivers that have brought ethics forward ESG certainly brings ethical issues to the forefront, the response to the Me Too movement. But just the speed with which AI has come into the marketplace and into the public consciousness, even though it's been developed over many decades, um, and the power of it has people, I think, really um, thoughtfully um, approaching its implementation. And so that that's exciting to me that that people are um, are are talking about issues that have been present in humans like like bias for example um, and we've struggled with how to combat that uh, other than becoming aware of our own innate biases um, and in some ways we're starting to hold this technology 
to higher standards than we hold human beings to. And it's, it's pushing our creativity a little bit. Uh, there's this accountability gap. You know, you, if, if, you, if something goes wrong in an organization using a standard uh, technology or approach, there's usually a human being that you can hold accountable for it. But in AI, if an algorithm's making a decision or you can't, or, or there's a lack of interpretability, you don't even know how the AI reached that decision. Um, even if you can explain uh, it, the, the outcome or the decision that was reached, um, that makes people uncomfortable. So they're trying to move to counter that bias. Uh, they might be in decisions about um, loans or employment or any one of a number of decisions that are being made, uh, overweight other attributes to, to sort of mitigate the bias that they know is already in the system. Um, so that's encouraging to me. That says we're actually trying to grapple with the things that we know are problematic. Um, but I also think companies need to be uh, more judicious in sort of their application of AI. There's, there is a tremendous environmental cost to it. It uses uh, the chips that, that uh, fuel AI use more energy than your average chip. And uh, AI uses a tremendous amount of water. And so for companies that have environmental goals, they're going to find, I think, some real um, contradictions between their desire to implement AI everywhere and then also be responsible stewards of the planet. And um, But again, I'm encouraged because I see organizations who are aware of that and are trying to innovate to reduce the computational power or needs of the AI systems or start to look at some innovations in the way that we cool data centers you know, trying to solve the issues that um, that it presents, and I find all of that uh, tremendously encouraging. I do. I do need to just correct or or adjust one thing that you said, which is advising the Vatican. <laughs> you know, we collaborated with the Vatican with with one part of the Vatican, the Dicastery of Culture and Education. They have been great partners um, as we've developed the book that we just published in June which is the ethics of um, ethics in the age of disruptive technologies an operational roadmap, which tries to help companies go from having these principles to how you actually implement them and how you move from maybe the loftier goals down to actually the, what the specifically those principles mean, and then actually what decisions you need to make in the organization to reflect those principles. And so the, the book does that. So it's been great to have some thought partners uh, and they've met with us regularly for the, for the last couple of years while we've been working on that uh, project um, because there's many organizations in the Vatican is one of them that uh, care deeply about um, AI and how it's used and the choices that we make. I think they want uh, to be sure and the Pope has written about the fact that we we use technology to serve humanity and not the other way around. Thank you for that, and I'm 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 glad to hear that you're perhaps a bit more of an optimist than I am in some some respects here, and I, I, I that that's that's very that's very encouraging, and that you're also seeing encouraging signs of organizations wanting to take responsibility and really putting these 
these these things to the forefront. And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we're having conversations that we haven't been having in, in the same way just some some years back. So I really wanted to get to talk to you about cultural health and, and healthy culture and what that looks like and how to build it. And of course, that's that's a real uh, key uh, topic on this podcast. So, and it, you've, you've done a lot of work around that. And I, I just wanted to ask you first, how do you define a healthy culture? Yeah, well, thank you for that question because it is one that I, um, I love thinking about. And to answer that question, I drew on some work that was done in the realm of mental health. Um, there's a doctor, Dan Siegel, who's written a number of books about uh, to define mental health in individuals. So rather than focus on disease or all of the ways that humans are mentally unhealthy or ill, he said, well, what does it look like when, when a human being is healthy? And he uh, developed a model. Uh, and, and what it looks like, by the way, is uh, that individuals are flexible, adaptable, coherent, energized, and stable. And you can apply those same things to organizations. And his, his model ports over pretty well to organizations. And so rather than focus on toxic cultures, which was getting a lot of um, attention for a period of time, I wanted to give people a positive frame to shoot for. And so a healthy culture is one that is integrated. It's one in which individuals can thrive and they are participating in supported empathetic relationships. Organizations like other complex systems, um, they have the ability, healthy organizations have the ability to perceive their internal state, like sort of to know how are they doing at any given point in time. They can reflect on their experiences and they encourage that interconnectedness. So I look for three things in cultures to determine if they're healthy. Are there empathetic relationships that are fostered and emphasized? And that includes um, whether or not an organization is aware of its role uh, in society and thinks about its relationship to society more broadly. And then I ask myself, how is the organization functioning? Integration in an organization looks like cross-functional collaboration happens easily and both strategic and executional activities are equally honored. So you wanna see all of that in a healthy organization. And you wanna see attention being paid to linkages in different parts of the organization that people are sort of intentionally trying to bring together uh, and work across the silos that exist in most companies. And then I ask myself, does the organization have mindsight, which is this ability to sort of get outside of itself and reflect on its own experiences and what that looks like um, is the ability to honor its past, to, 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 to draw from its history in the work that it's doing now, and to assess its, its current state. Uh, one of the best practices we see in organizations who do this are some kind of cultural self-assessment. Uh, we encourage an ethical cultural self-assessment, but many companies in this day and age have some kind of quick pulse taking that they're doing or periodic um, you know, attitude and opinion survey or something that's really designed to understand how's the company doing right now. Great. And I, th this, this is super fascinating, Anne, and, and I, I really find that, that, that super interesting. And we, when we talk about cultural health, we, we used to talk about a culture that enables mission success, a thriving workplace and responsible impact. And, and we kind of talk about I think many of the, the the things that you've mentioned as as kind of 
drivers there for and and really really fascinating and 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 so 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 thank you for working on that and sharing that with us and I I'm I'm just thinking about when when you think about then making sure that an organization is healthy or what it is that drives that what what leaders can do and 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 uh, in 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 our work we we've seen that a lot of organizations spend a lot of money time resources on short-term culture values initiatives that that bring very little value at the end of the day and, and that it's really just like with our physical health it really comes down to the habits we have not to the things that we do occasionally like like once a year going to the gym but it's it's the things that we do repeatedly and what are some things that you see that organizations leaders and employees need to be doing repeatedly so one thing that you that we see in organizations that have these these kinds of cultures is that leaders are consciously building community. They're doing things to bring people together. Sometimes it's just lighthearted social, you know, bringing people together. And other times it's more meaningful, but they're aware of the fact that people want and need to have some sense of belonging to a community. They um, usually effective leaders, uh, leaders who are building healthy cultures are great storytellers. And they're telling stories regularly that bring forward the values that they want the organization to build and to hold and care for. So those are some of the sort of things that the individual leader, you know, I I look for when I, the kinds of habits that just one person can do. And then organizationally, there are certain practices um, like rotating people through different assignments in different parts of the organization so that they can build perspective and have empathy for what's going on in a different part of the organization because they've actually worked there and they've gotten to know people there and and the work that's done. I've already touched a little bit on this idea of creating organization-wide rubrics for decision-making. I think that's a good habit. And I think um, that's both an individual and an organizational habit. And I think I see leaders who bring together representational groups regularly. So they're, they're bringing people from different parts of the organization, maybe into a cross-functional collaborative uh, effort, or they're, when they bring teams together, they're being really intentional about um, the diverse perspectives that that team represents. Um, some, um, some leaders are really good at acknowledging uncertainty. And I think that's part of organizational mindset is sort of recognizing that there is a lot of uncertainty in corporate life these days. Um, And uh, I guess one of the best examples I've seen of that is the response that many leaders provided during uh, the pandemic, where they were so clear with their employees, look, there's a lot lot of things here we don't know because we've never experienced this kind of situation before. And actually, that provided employees with a great degree of comfort, you know, and I think of um, a, a sense that there really was empathy, that we were could really understand each other's experiences because we were all um, dealing with the unknown together. So those are a few of the things that I, I've seen people do and that uh, really support this, the idea of, of building a, a culture that's healthy. Beautiful. So, so consciously building communities, being great storytellers, telling stories that bring forth the values, uh, 
rotating people through different assignments, creating organizational-wide rubrics for decision-making, and acknowledging uncertainty. I just wanted to repeat these for for our listeners, and and I think these are really, really helpful. And I, I, I think it's a great, great place to end at acknowledging uncertainty, and I think that kind of takes us back to where we started, and and I, I think this practice of what, what we talk about, which is admitting that we're vulnerable. And I think that perhaps the pandemic offered an opportunity where we all realized that no one had the answers and that made it also, in a sense, a bit easier to to be vulnerable and to be open about that because, yeah, we, I mean, no one else knew what was going to happen either. Uh, but I do think that if we can really learn from that, if we can learn from what I think the authenticity that that's created in the minds of our teams and and seeing their leaders being open about what they didn't know and so on. I think that there's so much that we can build on there in terms of building trust. And I think also in terms of making sure that we can actually avoid some of the the, the, the blind spots and, and, and red flags because we're more open to actually listening and we're not so much in a place of just wanting to protect the image of how, how great we are. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things we've learned is that there are, um, there are actually things you can look for in organizations to make sure that ethics will get used. Certain conditions in organizations that you want to um, be looking for. I, I already mentioned this sort of sense of responsibility to, to society more broadly but also this idea of cultivating a climate of trust and, and understanding in the organization, and then using these practices, some of which we've talked about of ethical deliberation, where you, you are involving people who are affected by decisions, you're using data to make your decisions. And you know where, wherever you can, you're thinking about the downstream effects of the decision you're making, and you're sharing uh, your motivations for those decisions uh, publicly if you can. So those kinds of, um, those are some things that I think people are, maybe don't think about as regularly when they're trying to implement change in an organization or have certain practices take hold. Um, but, but we know we've come to learn that those are really uh, important things to look for in organizations. And if they're lacking to try and create those conditions so that people will actually feel more comfortable using ethics in their everyday decision-making. This has been a super helpful conversation, and I, I really hope that our listeners that that you've made a lot of notes and that there's a lot of things here that you can take on into your organization of how we can be more intentional in our decision making and design our organizations for a healthier and, and more ethical culture. And and finally, I just wanted to ask you what are ways that people can connect with you and, and follow your work. Yeah, so we're at the Markla Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. You can reach us at www.scu.edu backslash ethics. And you can certainly reach out to me there. Uh, all of our information is on the website and on LinkedIn. And also from time to time, I'm on what was formerly known as Twitter X, but, uh, but not as much as I used to be for, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, where I tweet under the uh, at leader ethics. 
Thank you, Anne. And and I, I think that that end of your response there that that would open up a whole new conversation <laughs> that we're not that we're not gonna take now. But but thank you so much for that, Anne. And see you again soon. All right. Thank you very much, Tobias. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation. It really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.